if you don't find meaning in what it is that you do every day, that's when you're at massive risk of burnout. So if you're feeling like you're approaching burnout, that's when you need to lift up the hood and start to tinker around and go, okay, this used to be something I found meaning in. How come I don't anymore? Or I used to be so curious and fascinated by my work. I'm really not anymore. Or I used to actually feel like I was making a difference, but I don't anymore. And if you can start to uncover the answers to some of those questions and do some, some very difficult soul searching, you can usually find the thorn in your paw and have it removed so that you can get back to loving your work. Welcome to the HR LMD podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO and founder of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. Tuning into the HR LMD podcast will help you to discover strategic growth concepts, leadership development strategies, and the values and behaviors that drive organizational change and success. Together, let's empower our workforces diversify our thinking and achieve significant HR success. Hello and welcome back to the HR L&D podcast. Now let's get straight to it. Everyone who listens to this podcast is interested in optimizing performance, stress management techniques, and raising the bar in relation to high performance, right? I know that's right. So please, after you listen to this episode, share the contents with all of your HR and L&D colleagues, because this is one episode you're all going to want to share, because it's all about high performance. So I'm going to ask all of you now, when the audio finishes, just do one thing for me. Share it on WhatsApp, share it on social, play it to someone you know, help them to achieve high performance, because it's amazing how when we all work collaboratively, when we all work collectively, just how much impact we can all have on each other. and of course the future of work, on mindset, and so much more. Now, it's particularly important today because I'm hugely excited to be able to welcome you all to Alan Stein Jr., former basketball performance coach to NBA stars like Kobe Bryant and Kevin Durant. He's a motivational speaker, trainer to major companies like Pepsi and Amex, and he's also the author of the best-selling book, Sustain Your Game, High-Performance Keys to Manage Stress, Avoid Stagnation, and beat burnout, which is incredibly relevant to all of you HR and L&D professionals out there. Now, Alan spent over 15 years as a performance coach. He now teaches audiences how to utilize the same strategies in business that elite athletes use to perform at a world-class level. He's the best-selling author, as I mentioned, of another book as well called Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best of the Best, which was named one of the top mindset, productivity, and success books of all time by Book Authority. We are in great company today, so I'm hugely excited because I'm particularly fascinated about high performance. I love sport, and I'm really excited to get started. So let me welcome you all to Alan Stein Jr. to the HR L&D Show. How are you doing today, Alan? I am fantastic. I'm, I'm hoping I can meet your energy and enthusiasm because I am equally excited to be with you and looking forward to a really fun and, and hopefully impactful and meaningful conversation. Can't wait. Can't wait to get started. Before we jump in into the world of high performance, I'm going to ask this simple question. I ask all of my guests on the show, which is this. What do the words human resources mean to you? When I think of human resources, I think of how can we optimize the contributions and collaborations of the most important asset in any organization, and that is the people. You know, how can we get the most out of our colleagues and our coworkers, and, and, and again, have everyone fulfill their role to make a maximum contribution? And I know HR professionals are the glue that holds every organization together, and they're the ones that do that to the highest level. 
Absolutely. I love that response. I can hear everyone kind of agreeing with that across the waves here. Fantastic. What a great way to start. Well, look, before we jump into the book, which is something I really do want to delve deep into, it's all about high performance secrets. And I know that's something that all of you know the HR and L&D professionals listen to this right now, and those beyond, perhaps entrepreneurs and other people that listen to the show, they want to know about high performance. But before we get into that, what does the term high performance mean to you? Well, let's break down performance first, because I think many people hear the word performance and they automatically relegate that to something like athletics or to the arts or for someone that asks to traditionally perform even on a stage, if you will. And and I actually have a much broader view of performance because I believe that, that we need to perform in every single area of our lives. Certainly, we need to perform vocationally and at our job and maximize our role, but we need to perform in our communities as leaders. Uh, We need to perform as parents and as spouses. So I try and take the tenets of high performance that I have learned through the game of basketball and figure out ways to apply those principles of high utility to every area of my life, because I want to show up as my best self, not only as a keynote speaker and author, uh, but as a father and as a leader in my community. So for me, high performance is about bringing your best self as consistently as possible to everything that you do. Love that. Love that. And as you say, there's loads of connections between sport and the business world. We've learned that on the show before. We've had international rugby captains on the show. I've had an Olympic coach, a UK Olympic coach on the show. And I, I think I'm always surprised and enlightened when I hear about the connections between the sporting world of performance and the business world of performance. There's so much synergy between the two. And I, obviously you're bridging that gap with the work that you do. And as part of that, you've got a great website and I will put a link through to it, alansteinjr.com. Uh, there's a link in the show notes to that. But on that site, you talk a lot about When it comes to developing high-performance cultures, there are five Cs, which I think you put as cohesion, chemistry, communication, collaboration, and commitment. Tell us a little bit more about those. So let's look at culture first, just kind of because I know this is a word that's that's kind of thrown around. It's It's a buzzword in many instances. I simply view culture as how well aligned are your beliefs and your behaviors. You know, most organizations are fairly clear, if not crystal clear, on what it is that they believe. You know, they're crystal clear on their core values. They're crystal clear on their mission, on their vision. But the real key to having a high-performing culture is making sure that everyone in the organization behaves accordingly. You know, that that what people say and what people do on a consistent basis are in alignment with those things. It's one thing to have your core values on a sign in your break room or or behind the front desk or, or on your trifold brochure or on your website. But are your people actually living out those core values? Is that the behavior that's being demonstrated? And it's been my experience, whether in sports or business, the groups that have perfect and beautiful alignment between beliefs and behaviors are the ones that create the best experience for not only the the members of their team, but for the people that they serve, their clients and their, their, their customers. So culture is basically the experience derived by everyone on the team and everyone that you served by the alignment of your beliefs and your behaviors. And and in order to do that, that's where kind of the alliteration of the the C's come in. You know, you need to have tremendous cohesion with everyone on your team to be able to create that type of winning culture. And a good portion of that is, is done through collaboration and is done through effective communication. So when you can get kind of all of these points in alignment, then you have a winning culture. And and a winning culture is ultimately what will dictate your sustainable excellence. 
anyone can be a flash in a pan. Anyone can have a, a, a bit of good luck and have some lightning strike. But in order for you to consistently, year after year, incrementally improve uh, and grow your organization, you have to have a winning culture because that's what will help you attract the best teammates. Yeah. That's what will help you develop and grow the best teammates. And then most importantly, that's how you will retain the best teammates. Love that. I mean, you're absolutely speaking in the HR language right now as well. I and mean, I'm sure that's, that this must resonate with everybody there. And it's, you know, we, we started in my introduction there. Your background initially was coaching some of the biggest NBA stars that have ever lived, right? So I want to talk about your, your book, Sustain Your Game, and because it's really relevant now to the business world that we live in. And I want to jump into that. Before we do, though, you have also written another book called Raise Your Game, which is you know perhaps more sporting focus. You've got a, a fantastic background in sporting coaching and coaching at the highest level. So before we jump into sustaining your game, could you just give the listeners a little bit more of an overview of some of the people you've worked with, how you got involved in that, and what it's like working at the top, I mean, the absolute top of your profession? Most certainly. So for context, it's important for folks to know that basketball was my first identifiable passion, that I fell in love with the game of basketball at five years old. And I'm so thankful that here 40 years later, basketball is still a major pillar of my life. And, you know, as I progressed up and ended up playing at the university level, I started to develop an equal love for performance training, for strength and conditioning and fitness and mindset and nutrition. So when I graduated from university and realized it wasn't in the cards for me to play basketball professionally, I figured what could be better than combining my original love of basketball with my newfound love of performance training. So I became a basketball performance coach and I chose to specialize primarily at the youth and high school level because that's where I felt I could make the biggest impact. Yeah. Well, I had an opportunity to work at two different high schools here in the Washington, D.C. area that have produced over a dozen players currently playing in the NBA, the most notable of which is Kevin Durant. So I got an opportunity to work with some outstanding talent at very young ages, and I got to see what it took for them to climb that proverbial mountain and, and reach you know, their dreams and their goals of playing in the NBA. Well, that's what led to some opportunities with Nike basketball, with Jordan Brand, with USA basketball. And I got a chance to work events for guys that were already established legends, guys like Steph Curry, LeBron James, and Kobe Bryant. So I got to see not only what it takes to reach that proverbial mountaintop, but what does it take to stay there and to sustain excellence for long periods of time? So my journey has given me that vantage point of, of the climb and the ability to sustain. And, and that was really the impetus for both books. You know, just to, to make sure your folks know, I write the books that mirror what it is that I'm going through in my own life, which means in essence, I'm writing the book that I need to read myself. So when I decided to leave the basketball training space and enter the corporate keynote speaking space, an area where I had no name recognition, no credibility, and not an ounce of experience, I needed to uncover what would it take for me to reach optimal performance as a keynote speaker and author. So that was the reason for writing Raise Your Game. Then over the last, you know, a couple of years of that, I realized, and this is not to imply that I'm done my climb. I'll yeah. be on the climb to optimal performance for as long as I'm around. But I started to realize there was a slight difference between reaching optimal performance and sustaining it. And I found that the three things that undermine our ability to sustain excellence and to sustain fulfillment is stress, stagnation, and burnout. And those were three things that, that I have been challenged by and continue to be challenged by throughout my life. So that was really the impetus for writing uh, the second book. And, and I did that during the pandemic where I found that those three things 
had been heightened exponentially that, that, you know, people were feeling stress, stagnation and burnout to unbeforeseen levels. So not only am I writing these books kind of as self-therapy to help me grow and improve, I write them in service of others because I figure if it's something that I'm going through and it's something that I'm challenged with, somebody else out there would benefit from this. So that was the reason for writing both books. And and I I deliver those programs both virtually and and on stages as well, and just have so much fun sharing all of this stuff. Fantastic. Well, a great overview. Uh, Thank you for sharing that with us. And I think actually you touched upon either three things that certainly the HR community is feeling right now, burnout after the pandemic in particular, where they've really had to manage so many parts of an organization to make sure the employees are welfare is is looked after and the business continues to run optimally. But something that just comes to mind, it's not a a pre-prepared question here, but you mentioned about that journey, that journey to the top of the mountain that you got to coaching some of the best stars in the world. Often you hear when you talk about people when they get to the top of that journey, and this will be relevant for HR people out there that maybe they've just got their first, that final role as an HR director or VP of HR, they've, they've climbed that mountain, they've, they've hit the pinnacle. But actually, they often say when you get to the top of Everest, when you walk down, it's, it's, it's coming down that's the most dangerous aspect. Or even when you get there, you have that endorphin rush, you've made your goal, your lifelong goal is to get to X, maybe for you to coach some of these amazing stars. And then what next? So before we jump into that bit, because I think that kind of comes before the sustain piece for me, you get to the top of the journey. How do we handle that? Not disappointment because it's exciting for getting there, but it's the what next moment to allow you to get to the the foundation of sustaining it then moving forward. Oh, I'm so glad you went in that direction. That is such an incredibly insightful and, and very accurate thought. And really it comes down to shifting your perspective off of the destination or off of the outcomes and results and refocusing that lens on the process or on the journey. See, when you can learn to actually love the climb, then reaching that proverbial mountaintop is just the byproduct of that. It's just, it's a nice bonus. It's kind of the, the cherry on top. When you can actually relish and revere and respect and love the work itself, then you've already won in advance. And and I know that is much easier said than done. We live very much in an outcome-based society. And I understand that people are, are vying for promotions and they want that title. They want to reach certain metrics. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But it can be a very slippery slope if, if the majority of your, your self-belief and your self-value and your confidence simply stems from those external metrics. When you can learn to detach from those external metrics and just love the work, just love the climb, just love the process, that's what will prevent you from having that massive letdown after you've reached it. And, and we do very much, as you said so beautifully, live in kind of this what next mentality that you yeah. just achieve something that you've been working towards for years and the elation you get from that is incredibly short lived. And it's time to refocus the lens on something else and to avoid that roller coaster of the immense high followed by almost a depression, for lack of a better word is just loving the climb. It's saying, hey, I've enjoyed climbing this mountain and reaching this goal. All right, where's the next mountain for me to climb? Because I love the climb so much. And that shift in perspective is is what will keep things much more stable and, and actually bring you so much more fulfillment. Because the other very slippery slope that many high performers, and that's what I consider everyone listening to your show right now, is that we we actually connect our self-worth to our achievement. And the problem with that is that means that when you're achieving, you feel good about yourself. And when you fall short of a goal or after you've reached a goal on the way back down, then you start to feel lousy. And I don't know about you, but I I think life is too short to spend any significant amount of time feeling lousy. And and I found the remedy for that 
is loving the work, loving the process, and actually loving the climb. Oh, I love that response. I've got to package it. Honestly, I, I, it resonates with something. I had a conversation with my daughter and people on the show might have heard me use this reference before, but uh, you know, my daughter's struggling with her homework. I'm just going to throw it out there because you know, it's really easy for me to sometimes give her the answers. I can say, right, it's your maths homework. Give it here. I'll give her the answers. You're struggling with it. You're upset. And then we'll just move on. But I said to her, it's a bit like when you, you climb an Everest, right? If you climb Everest, that journey to the top is hard work, months of training, acclimatization, challenge, could be, you know, all kinds of things can go wrong. When you get to the top, you have this amazing panoramic view, only for a moment. But if I flew you to the top and you met me there and you got there by helicopter, we've got the same view, but the view is entirely different. And I said to my, you know, my daughter, you've got to go through the journey because if you work it out yourself, if you get there and go through the pain, when you actually get that eureka moment where you've sussed it, that's so much more valuable than me just giving you the answer now and you're moving on. I think you you worded that much better than I just have, but it was a really, it's the journey that's so important. So, and you must have that a lot with the, some of the stars you've worked with where, you know, first they get the first professional contract. What's the next goal? Now you've got to sustain that contract to get to the next level and get to the next level. So this is something you've dealt with all, the, all your life with the kind of people that you've coached in the sporting world. So I just think it's fantastic. I just want to make that little that little point there. Just say I, I I loved your response you gave. Totally resonates with how I view performance and how you know we get over that hurdle of of when you meet one goal, how do we set the next? So we've we've done that bit. We've 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 staying motivated. We're loving the journey. How do we sustain it then? Tell us a little bit more about the book, especially if you can share some high performance secrets as well. Perhaps our listeners can really use to build some of their mental fortitude they might need to help them stay on top of their game. Well, you know, it's interesting. It reminds me of an experience that really shifted my perspective on kind of the, the climb versus, you know, being able to sustain. This would have been, boy, almost 15 years ago when I was working an event for the NBA and they had a, a bunch of, of rookies, first year players in the NBA, and they had a veteran come in to talk to them. And, and I'm not going to name who the player was, but he was a very acclaimed player. And he said something that really stuck with me. And he said this with a tremendous amount of love in his heart to these guys. You know, he said, you know, congratulations on making it to the NBA. I know this has been a lifelong journey and a lifelong goal of yours, but I want you to know what you just did was the easy part. Making it to the NBA is the easy part. And he said that with a smile and a wink, because obviously there is nothing easy about making the NBA, but he said, you've just accomplished the easy part. The hard part is staying in the NBA. At the time he said that the average NBA career was three and a half years. Wow. Uh, so he just wanted to make the point that, yes, you've done, you've made so many sacrifices and you've put in so much work to reach this pinnacle, but now's not the time to put on the, the cruise control uh, and to stagnate because the real work begins now. Now you have to do, you know, you have to earn, which I think is the beauty of what you just shared. You have to earn the right to stay in the NBA. And, you know, a, a good portion of that is being able to manage the things that, that are kind of, you know, highlighted in my, my new book is, you know, can you manage the stress in the day to day, which is something that we all face? Sure. Can you avoid stagnation in that midterm? Can you avoid getting complacent and clicking on that mental cruise control? And then of course, can you continue to find meaning and purpose in your work so that you don't get burned out? And that's kind of done over the long term. And uh, I just thought that was a neat way for him to position that. And it also makes, you know, what a, what a player like LeBron James is doing even that much more remarkable. When you hear the average NBA career is three and a half years, and he's been able to stay atop of the NBA mountain for almost two full decades is really a testament to his ability in particular to sustain excellence. 
Absolutely. So what are some of the, the secrets then to avoiding burnout, as you mentioned, to avoiding, I don't need to keep using the word avoiding, but avoiding stagnation and, and being able to sustain that? Because these are real life challenges that I know certainly our listeners are struggling with post-pandemic where they've worked multiple hours, they've had to adjust to working from home, they're, everything's thrust upon them and you can feel burnt out. You can feel like I, I haven't even got a chance to open my, my vision to be able to not stagnate, right? Because I want to go forward, but actually I'm just trying to deal with the day-to-day. What, what, what kind of um, tactics could you give our listeners? Well, first and foremost, just know that anyone listening to this, if you have experienced some stress, some stagnation and burnout at any time in your career, one, you are most certainly not alone and and, and that these are very normal human conditions that we face and and that none of us uh, are impervious to them or immune to them. These are things that we'll all be dealing with in some fashion over the course of our entire life. But can we come up with some some strategies and some systems and some processes to lessen their occurrence and certainly lessen their uh, severity? So what I'll do now is I'll give you just kind of some brief thoughts on stress, stagnation, and burnout. And you tell me which ones you'd like to dive in deeper or how you'd like to, to navigate this conversation. Perfect. So the first thing I'll say about stress, and this sometimes is an eyebrow raiser and comes off as a controversial statement, but I firmly believe that stress is a choice. Stress is actually something we invite into our lives. Now, we do that unconsciously because I don't think anyone intentionally tries to add stress to their plate. But the reason I believe that, that, that stress is a choice, stems from one of the biggest mind shifts that I've ever had. And that was when I heard Eckhart Tolle, who basically is a modern day philosopher, when he provided his definition of stress, it, it radically changed the way I saw the world and certainly the way I saw stress. And Eckhart Tolle said that stress is the desire for things to be different than they are in the present moment. That's it. You wish things were different than they were right now, which in essence means you are fighting against reality. Whatever's happening is actually happening. And your stress does not come from what's happening. It's derived from your resistance to it. So that was one of the biggest mistakes that I had made for most of my life, thinking that stress was caused by circumstances and events and what people said and what people did. I thought that was the root of my stress when in essence it wasn't. Those things were just happening. The world was just doing what the world was doing. My stress was caused because I was resisting those things. It was because of my perspective of those things. It was because that's how I was internalizing those things. So the first step to lowering your stress is having a level of acceptance. Now, before anyone listening turns this off or thinks that I've absolutely (laughs) lost my marbles, I'm not saying that the things that go on in the world are to your liking. I'm not saying they're your preference. I'm not even saying that some of the things that happen in this world are inherently good. What I'm saying is you don't have any control over those things. Those things are just happening. And it's how you choose to internalize them. And most importantly, your response to them is what will determine your stress. I loved your example of, you know, you make the climb to the top of Everest. I'm flown in by helicopter to the top of Everest. We're both at Everest, but we have very different views and very different perspectives. Well, it's the same thing with stress. You and I could both be stuck in the exact same traffic jam, but we could view that very differently. Absolutely. You could choose to view that as something that is happening to you and the world is conspiring against you to make sure you're late for your meeting and you could white knuckle your steering wheel and you could you know, scream some obscenities and honk your horn and, and allow your blood pressure to rise and, and throw yourself into a funk. 
I could be sitting literally in the car next to you and choose a very different approach. Say, it's not my preference to sit in traffic, but this is what's happening right now and I'm okay with it. I accept what's going on and I'm going to either enjoy some quiet and some stillness. Maybe I'm going to fire up a podcast like yours and listen to a podcast. Maybe I'll give my mom and dad a call and catch up with them, but I'll text the person that I was supposed to meet and just tell them I'm going to be a few minutes late. You and I are in the same traffic jam, but we are creating different levels of stress based on our perception. So that's how I look at stress. Stagnation is what I've said a couple of times before about putting on the, the cruise control. It's allowing a level of complacency, if you will. And I found that when we stagnate, the frustrating part is we stagnate our outputs, you know, our productivity, our efficiency, our mindset. That's what stagnates. And I've also come to realize that our outputs are directly impacted by our inputs, what we read, watch, and listen to, who we choose to invest our time with, you know, who we connect with on social, all of these different things. The stuff that's going in dictates the stuff that's going out. So if the stuff that's going out has started to flatline or stagnate, or you feel that you're just kind of on the, the hedonic treadmill and you're just treading water, the very first thing you can do is shake up the inputs. Change what you read, watch, and listen to. Change the, the stuff that you feed your mind and your emotions and your heart, and then change who you are investing your time with. And that will increase you know, your ability to have better outputs. And then lastly, with burnout, burnout stems not only from working long hours, that is part of it, sure. but it's when the long hours that we work and the sacrifices that we make are no longer in alignment with what we find meaningful, with the purpose that we find in our work. You know, if you're not fascinated or curious by your work, if you don't feel you are making a contribution to your team or to the greater good, and if you don't find meaning in what it is that you do every day, that's when you're at massive risk of burnout. So if you're feeling like you're approaching burnout, that's when you need to lift up the hood and start to tinker around and go, okay, this used to be something I found meaning in. How come I don't anymore? Or I used to be so curious and fascinated by my work. I'm really not anymore. Or I used to actually feel like I was making a difference, but I don't anymore. And if you can start to uncover the answers to some of those questions and do some, some very difficult soul searching, you can usually find the thorn in your paw and have it removed so that you can get back to loving your work. Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Well, what a brilliant passage. What a, what a great answer. And you, you sum up that absolutely fantastically. I'm going to make a couple of points of things that just resonated with me with what you said, Alan, because I was, yeah, I was fascinated and uh, really, really enjoyed, really enjoyed the response that you gave. I think the first aspect was stress. Um, it resonated with me because someone said to me, I can't remember who it was, it may have been Jake Humphreys from a podcast, but they mentioned to me, he said, look, because I'm not going to say I don't get stressed. I definitely suffer with stress, right? But I manage it slightly better than I used to. So do I. <laughs> but what he said, what I heard was, he said, look, before you get stressed, try and, particularly if it's by email, and we, we all often become keyboard warriors in the world of work now, uh, you know, we're all online and, and connecting. 
But actually, sometimes it's an email that makes us stressed and we see the way that it's read and we can't always read tone in an email. But one thing that, this, that Jake said was this, when you get an email or you get a call and you're not happy with the response, try and ask yourself, what would you have said if you were them? Now, bearing in mind the person that sent it to you, bearing in mind their, their culture, their demographic, their time zone, you know, the work that they do, their, their level of education, all those different things. If you put all of that together and try and create that narrative, would you have sent the same email that they've just sent? Because you're analyzing it from your interpretation, your internalized it, how you would have written it based on how you're feeling now. And actually, if you do that, it can sometimes just calm the situation, which is you know, a shorthand version of nowhere near as detailed as you put it. But I think that's helped me manage my stress a little better than I used to. And on the stagnation piece, I'm a keen triathlete. And to, to bring it up to sport, I, I'm reading a book at the minute called Iron War, which is a very famous triathlete competes against each other. And they realized in the US, they did a study about how many people were adopting triathlon in the, in the early 2000s, late 90s. And they realized it wasn't about winning the race or finishing it. It was the getting comfortable in the uncomfortable and going through that pain, which links it back to the journey. It was being able to suffer pain and still getting to the end results that made that endorphin rush at the end so much more powerful. People were looking to do triathlon because marathons weren't giving them the same buzz anymore. Swim wasn't giving them the same buzz. So you find it's multi-sport. I know it's slightly different and I'm linking it back to sport, but I think it's really interesting because it comes back to that journey piece you mentioned with stagnation. That we need to sometimes be more comfortable in the uncomfortable because then great things can happen. I think sometimes we don't push ourselves enough out of our comfort zones. We've got listeners here that have done some phenomenal things. And often it starts with a real nervous, I don't know how to get started moment. But when you get you know, 20 seconds of bravery just to, to make that start and whole new things can happen. And I can know you've done that in your career, even with the Sustain Your Game book, right? You're in a pandemic, you're thinking, well, what's going on? We're going to create this new book. It is a fantastic read. And there will be a link in all the show notes, guys. So I recommend you all go to the show notes and get access to the book. I'll make sure that's available. For you now, and bearing those three things in mind to help our listeners get better at what they do and to, to manage their work lives better, what for you makes the best the best? Can you define what the best is even? I actually believe every person needs to define that for themselves. You know, we, we've already covered how we can have similar experiences, but we can have very different perspectives. And yeah. I think it's really important for everyone to get crystal clear on their own definition of, of success, on their definition of fulfillment, and certainly their definition of what does the best look like, or continue using these, these athletic terms, what does winning look like? And once you can get crystal clear on that, then you can start to create the habits and the mindsets and the disciplines and the processes that will give you the best chance of reaching that best or of, of having that win, if you will. And so I, I think it's something that, that every single person needs to define for themselves. For me personally, it is about showing up consistently as the, you know, mentally, physically, and emotionally as the best version of myself, being prepared to be open, to be vulnerable, to make a maximum contribution. You know, I, I, I consider being my best as leading with empathy and with compassion. I consider being my best to be open-minded to diverse thoughts and diverse perspectives and try to be as inclusive as possible. And I know these are all terms that, that your audience, you know, swims in daily. I mean, that, you know, I, I very much consider, uh, and I'm certainly not saying this to pander to your audience, but HR professionals are the unsung heroes of every organization. They are the glue Absolutely. that holds everything together. It's been my experience that, you know, the leadership team or the, the top sales producers, they're the ones that get many of the accolades and they're the ones that make most of the headlines. 
but they can only do that because of the foundation that's been provided by those in, in HR. So I really mean that sincerely. And, and HR are the gatekeepers to culture, and they're the gatekeepers to empowering and encouraging everyone in the organization to show up as their best, however they define it, as consistently as possible. And when that does happen, we need to praise that behavior because that which gets praised gets repeated. When that doesn't happen, when someone in your organization shows up as less than their best self, we need to have the courage and care enough to hold them accountable to that. Now, we need to do that with empathy and compassion, not through judgment or blame, but we need to be able to encourage them and hold them to a a high level of accountability and say, look, I believe you're better than what you're showing me right now. I care about you and I care about us, and I believe you are capable of making a bigger contribution than you are right now, or you're capable of showing up as a better version of yourself. And I want to help support you in being able to do that. What do you need from me in order for you to be your best? I think that is one of the most important questions that a leader can ask. And absolutely one of the most important questions that someone in an HR position can ask. Yeah, what a great response. And I think it'll be a great entry to the start of my HR book. If I ever write one, Alan, I'll, uh, I'll snap that and put it in. So, okay, well, let, let's take it back a second then. So we're, for me, that you've talked about compassion. You've talked about, I think, energy comes through, ability to, to meet someone's potential. Often we hear the phrase that knowledge is power. Now, you've worked with some of the biggest brands in the world, from Amex, Pepsi, and the biggest superstars, LeBron James, you mentioned, you know, Kevin Durant, and so on. So let me ask you, you know, is knowledge power? Do we need that knowledge in order to create the levels that we need to get to? Or can we disrupt that a little bit? I understand that there's something sexy about the cliched comment that knowledge is power. And I have been hearing that my entire life. And I'm not going to say that it's wrong, but I actually believe it's just incomplete because I don't think knowledge in and of itself is where the power is derived. It's the application of knowledge. That's where we stem our power. You know, the just knowing something without doing is in essence useless. You, You have right behind you, you have that beautiful bookshelf with so many beautiful books. If those books just stay on your shelf and you don't read them, well, then you're not going to acquire any knowledge. So I think we can all agree that wouldn't do you any good. For sure. If you do read every single book on that shelf, but you don't apply any of the teachings or any of the lessons, then in essence, nothing has changed. It's really no different than had you not read the book in the first place. So the key is being able to take some of those beautiful works, read them, internalize them, and then start to put them into action. Then start to put some of their strategies and their principles into play. That's when you'll actually see a change in your results and a change in the way that you uh, approach the journey. So for me, it's all about action. It's all about implementation. It's all about execution. But it's very easy, especially for those of us that enjoy the self-development space, to, to constantly be on the quest for knowledge when we're not even applying the stuff that we've already learned. You know, we said at the beginning of this conversation that it's very easy to have that, you know, what's next mentality. And I've done that before. You know, I've read a book cover to cover, really enjoyed it. And then the first thing I think is, all right, what's the next book I can read when I haven't even started to implement the stuff that I just got out of that book? The analogy I use, and and I think people say often, you know, I'm I'm looking to add tools to my toolbox. That's a phrase that I hear often. And, And very similar to knowledge, My question is, are you using the tools that you have? Because if all you're doing is adding more tools to your toolbox, all you're going to do is be lugging around a heavier toolbox. You know, I mean, how how many hammers does one need? You know, I'm not very handy. I'm not good with tools. I'm not good (laughs) with fixing things. So I don't have the answer to that. 
But my, my question would be, you know, if you're not using your hammer or your screwdriver or your wrench or your saw, then what's the point in adding all of these additional tools? You're not even using the basic tools, the fundamental tools that you have. So for me, where I've really tried to make a shift in my own life over the last few years is to narrow my window and narrow my focus to a handful of fundamentals and basics, ones that I believe have very high utility and can serve me in every area of my life and try to, to apply and execute and implement those as frequently as possible. And, and, and when I can do that effectively, then and only then do I look to, to graduate towards maybe a more advanced tool or a more advanced technique. But I don't want to skip over those, those basics or those fundamentals. So I do believe that knowledge is the start of something that can be an absolute game changer but it has to be implemented and executed in order for that to take place. Yeah, you, you articulate that very well. Have you mentioned that knowledge power is a, is a well-known cliche? I think uh, something, another one, which is uh, jack of all trades, master of none. We don't want to have, you know, use all the tools in our toolbox not very well is not as powerful as using a couple of them really, really well. So yeah, similar kind of uh, cliche used. So let's talk about a sustain your game then. Tell us a little bit about some of the learnings that our listeners can take away from the book and some of the things they might be able to implement on the back of reading the book. I've got a question to come after this, which relates to chapter 10, but I'll keep that a secret for now. But I wonder, okay, if, I, wonder, wonder if you could just tell our listeners a little bit more about you know, some, of the, some of the tools you, you would give them in the book if, if that might help them. Well, I did touch on it earlier. And then you, you said something incredibly profound and insightful after when I was talking about stress, uh, about when someone says something to you, not allowing that to stress you out, but having the empathy and compassion to take a pause and think, okay, why did they respond this way? Yeah. And you, you led into something really important. And I think this is kind of the fundamental theme of the book. You know, And I don't know who originally said this. Certainly it wasn't me, but it's kind of this mindset as we don't see the world as it is, we see the world as we are. You know, It's incredibly important for each and every one of us to have the humility to acknowledge that the way we see the world and that can be on a macro level, like the way we see society, or it can be on a micro level, the way I see one of my colleagues at work is biased. It's inherently biased because I'm seeing the world through a, a different lens than you are. Sure. And the lens at which I see the world has been impacted by how old I am, by my race, by, by where I grew up geographically, by how I was raised by my friends, by the people that have coached and taught me, by the things that I read, watch, and listen to, by what I consume you know, content-wise on social media. All of these things have had a, a massive impact on the way that I see the world. These things have, have, have helped navigate my thoughts and my feelings. These things have not navigated my beliefs and my perspectives. So I have to acknowledge, and we've, we've hit this point a couple times already, that you and I can both be looking at the exact same thing at the exact same time and we see things differently and we have different feelings about that. Yeah. And with that, you know, I have the humility to acknowledge that if the way I'm seeing the world is somewhat biased, then of course the way everyone else is seeing the world is, is somewhat biased as well, is try to get out of the construct of looking at the world through the lens of right and wrong or good and bad. And instead just say, we all have different perspectives. And my goal is to get to learn your perspective as much as I can. Even if it's something that you and I fundamentally disagree on, I'm going to first respect the fact that you are entitled to have your own opinion on it, just like I believe I am. Secondly, I'm going to get really fascinated because I want to find out why do you believe what you believe? 
I mean, you and I are are relatively informed and educated guys. And, and if you and I see something very differently, instead of trying to judge you or condemn you or even worse, beat you over the head until you see the world the way I do, which is completely futile and never works. Instead, I want to lean in with fascination. I want to I want to figure out why do you believe what you believe? Like I'm, I'm curious on how you could see something so vastly differently than I do. I want to learn more about that. And that will cause me to lean in with empathy and compassion. And, and this doesn't mean that I'll end up agreeing with you. And this doesn't mean that we'll end up on the exact same page. But I found as a connective tool, when you become fascinated and curious instead of judgmental and condemning, and when you respect the fact that what I believe is not fact and it is not right and it is not a truth, it is simply my belief, that helps take some of the diffusion out of the divisiveness that I think we see in so many different areas. So it's it's the same thing really in, in any area. I just have to acknowledge that the way I see it is not fact and it is not a truth. It is simply my own perspective. And that helps take a, a level of self-righteousness out of any approach that I would have. And it allows for someone like you and I who might see something very different, instead of us now being divisive, we can be more inclusive and we can find the red threads that do connect what we we, we feel and what we believe. And, and I think if we can all make more of an effort to do that, and ultimately that's part of the job description of someone in HR is to get everyone in the organization to be less divisive and more inclusive and to appreciate and respect diverse thoughts and diverse perspectives, then I, I think not only would, would work you know, uh, be a better environment, but at the risk of sounding really cliche and motivationally, the world would actually be a much better place. No, I couldn't agree more. And actually, you've touched upon something which is, I think, extremely relevant for the world of HR and the future of work and the way that we're seeing it, which is, this is not new, but getting rid of the command and control culture that we've come from and moving into, well, effectively, is the way you've described it there, a coaching culture, a coaching culture that involves asking questions before giving responses, a culture that, as you say, needs compassion, needs empathy, needs inclusion, needs diversity of thought. But in order to obtain all of those things, you need to be able to ask questions. I think the way you were, it was to be fascinated in someone else which is exactly right. You can only be fascinated if you're willing to ask questions to understand where their belief systems lie, to know how to, how to respond and how to be inclusive. I think you've actually summed up what I think the future of work will look like for the world of HR, or certainly for successful HR and for successful business planning and process grow and growth and all the other things that go with it. And I think, hey, look, if your book gives us those tools, then I recommend every HR professional takes a look at it and reads it. Um, I certainly was, found it a fascinating read from what I've read so far. It's chapter 10. There's an element in there, Alan, I want to bring to life here. And I think the listeners might enjoy this anyway, because chapter 10 is all about reflection. And you ask the reader what the biggest adversity is that they're currently facing. So I'm going to flip it over to you and say, you know, you're a very successful, high-performance coach. You've found your feet in, 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 in basketball coaching and now keynote speaking. So what's the biggest adversity you're facing at the moment? And how are you using your own processes to sustain your own game to power through whatever that adversity might be? At present, my biggest adversity is not necessarily something singular or acute, but it's more of an accumulation over the last couple of years, which have been incredibly challenging. You know, the the pandemic has provided a massive disruption, not only to us professionally, but personally as well. And and I, I can recognize 
that I've accumulated, and I'll just call them some issues, and I say that with a huge <laughs> smile, from that disruption. You know, there, there are two things that bring me immense joy. One is watching my own children, and I have, I have three kids. I have 12-year-old twin sons and a 10-year-old daughter. My watching goodness. my kids do the things they enjoy, which at present is mostly wrapped up in sport. All three of my kids are, are basketball players, and they love to play basketball. And, and, and you know, for a good almost year, that was that was sidelined. I didn't have the ability to watch them play because youth athletics were hit sure. you know, on pause and put on the shelf here. So I, I wasn't able to do something that really fills my bucket. The other thing that really lights me up is being able to be on stage and, and to be in boardrooms and, and conference rooms and sharing with folks like your listeners. You know, I, I love giving keynotes. I love leading workshops and doing trainings. I love sharing the things that I've found have been really helpful in my life. I mean, that fills my bucket. And once again, I wasn't able to do that in the traditional way. I wasn't able to do that in person for almost a year. I was able to deliver that virtually, which I'm incredibly thankful, kept my business afloat, but it, it doesn't fill my bucket the same way because you don't have that in-person energy and, and, and you know, the ability to, to be around other people. So you know, for almost a year and a half, the two things that, that most fill my bucket we're disrupted and distracted. And, and I don't say that to blame, complain, or make an excuse. I mean, that, you know, I, I understood that's the reality and I found ways to cope, but I'm now finding, you know, there's, there's some remnants of that and some things that I still need to recalibrate and reconcile. And in addition to putting my own things in practice, you know, and that's one of the reasons I love being a speaker and an author yeah. is I feel indebted to holding myself to the things that I teach. You know, I feel that if I'm going to share this from stage or I'm going to share this on the page, I need to be living this myself. But I also look for outside help. You know, funny enough, a couple hours after this recording, I've got a, a, an appointment with my therapist. You know, I go see a therapist once or twice a month because they can help me see my blind spots and they can help me heighten the tools that I need, the self-reflective tools that I need to get myself you know, out of these funks. And, you know, you, you mentioned the future of, of work is about less command and control and more about asking questions and empowering. And I found that's what a great therapist does. You know, a, a therapist never tells you what to do, or at least a good therapist doesn't. <laughs> what they do is they hold space and they ask insightful questions so that you can come to your own conclusions. And of course, the beautiful part of that is, is you're the one creating your resolution. You're the one creating what, what you're hoping will move you to a higher place, which means you're the only one that can hold yourself accountable. So if, if I try and do something to up-level and, and overcome some of this adversity and it doesn't work out, I can't blame my therapist because they didn't tell me to do that. I'm the one that created that blueprint. So I'm the one that has to look in the mirror and, and hold myself accountable to a level of extreme ownership. So I find that incredibly helpful. So the process of going in for therapy not only helps me personally, but it also reminds me of the type of leader that I want to be and the type of way that I want to navigate the world and interact with others, which is to hold space for them, encourage them, support them, pour into them so that they can come up with the best solutions possible so that they can be the best versions of themselves as consistently as possible. I think it's really interesting you mentioned uh, a therapist and the support that they gives you because I think, I can't think of an example where it hasn't happened, but when I've spoken to people that are very much entrenched in the world of high performance and they could be business entrepreneurs, TEDx speakers, authors, people like yourself that are working with the superstars, actually most people that are at the top of their game tend to have someone else 
that supports them in a, whether it's a performance coach, therapist, whatever it might be. And actually it, it seems to be a lot more open now that people talk about that. And I, certainly for my own, my own business, I have a performance coach as well that I go and speak to and I've had him on my show. He's been brilliant for me where he's, as you say, it gives you that self-reflective opportunity. And I think if there is an HR professional out there who's struggling with some of the things you talk about in your book, stagnation, burnout, you know, stress, actually having someone if it's as well as your book, but having someone alongside it they can speak to and be self-reflexive about can, can have, you know, huge, huge improvements to well-being and, and wellness and all the things that you talk about and help you become, as you say, help you reach the top of whatever that mountain or that vista is that you want to get to. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. And yes, it has been my experience that the highest performers in any area of life have coaches, many yeah. of them a series of coaches. My therapist, I guess on some level, you could call a quote unquote life coach. I also have a speaking coach. I have a writing coach. I have a financial advisor and I just call him my money coach, (laughs) helping me make better decisions more consistently financially so that I can be financially free. So I I know, I have the self-awareness to know what things that I do really, really well. I also have the awareness to know my biggest opportunities for growth in the areas where I need help. And anytime someone has a level of expertise that it far exceeds my level of expertise in that specific area, then I strongly consider hiring a coach or a mentor in that space to help me be able to level up. And that was one of the reasons that I started offering some one-on-one coaching services is because I believe that that I can be that person for someone else. Sure. In, in certain areas. I mean, there, there are plenty of areas where you do not want to come from me, come to me yeah. to be your coach, but in, in some specific areas about optimizing performance and sustaining fulfillment, it's something that I'm, I'm able to, to have a massive influence and impact on people. And even with that said, you know, I want to make sure that I make the huge disclaimer to you and to your audience that with everything I share from stage, everything I've put in both books, and everything I've shared with you in this conversation, it is not coming from a place of mastery. These are all things that I am continuing to work on and to refine. These are things that I still am challenged by and struggle with on occasion. So I haven't figured all of this out. But what I have done is I've put myself on a path that I'm very proud of. And I'm also very proud of the progress that I've made. In everything that we've talked about, I am consistently better at those things today than I was a year ago or five years ago or definitely 10 years ago. And if for some reason you invite me back on your podcast two years from now, I can almost guarantee you that I'll be even better then than I am today. And that is because I recognize the fact that I will always be a work in progress, that I will always be under construction. No one's putting me under museum glass anytime soon. I've got a lot of work that I want to continue to do. But as we said you know, before, and hopefully this is a nice red bow tie on our conversation, that's what I enjoy. The work is what I love. This process of working towards self-actualization and working towards my higher self is what I love. And anything that comes as a result of that you know, whether that's a, a certain number of books sold or getting on a stage at a certain fee or, or whatever that may be, that's just a nice addition. That's not the reason that I do this. I do this stuff because I really and truly love the work and find meaning and fulfillment in the work. So I say that with a huge smile that I've already won before I take the stage. I've already won before my next book comes out. And, and, I, and I say that with humility because to me, winning is loving that process. You've taken it full 360 here because we started talking about loving the journey. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where we are, right? I mean, you've made it to the top of the game. You haven't got to prove yourself as a performance coach. You've, you've, you've coached some of the biggest 
stars, not just of now, of all time in the world of basketball, right? So, you know, you haven't got to prove that. That credibility is there. It's in, it's in the history books for you. But you're still, as you can tell, for anyone listening to this, I mean, your passion, if you're watching it, you can see it. But the passion you have for this subject absolutely comes across. And we can see, you can hear the energy, you can feel the energy that you are clearly loving that journey. And if your book can help other people to love their work as much as you clearly love your own, then I think it's going to be a great success. And as I say, I'm absolutely putting a link to your book in the show notes. Please do check it out. But more than that, I'm going to, I'm going to open the vault. And I'm going to, then I'm going to introduce someone to everyone to your website. Now, often, I'll often reference the website and say it's in the show notes. In your case, it's a little bit different. Your website goes above and beyond for anyone who wants to get into the world of high performance. And they want to find out what high performance is all about. I mean, you're offering resources, free downloads. There's coaching you can get involved in. There's meeting plan. There's things you can download. For anyone listening to this who is working at the top of their game, wants to get to their top of the game, is just loving the journey, and you want to find out what high performance is all about and get some resources to help you achieve more, Please, please, please do go to Alan Stein Jr. That's jrdn.com. Link will be in the show notes. It is a fantastic and very well produced website. So congratulations from my side there, Alan. It's, it's, a, it's a brilliant site. I, I get caught loose. I'm going to bring us back quickly for some short, sharp answers, which is we're going to open the HR L&D vault. Opening the L&D vault. Four quick questions for you. Number one, in hindsight, what's the one thing you now know that you'd wish you'd known, Alan, when you began your career? That the way I see the world is not fact or truth. It's inherently biased by my own, you know, my own experiences. Very nice. If you could give one piece of advice to the world, what would it be? Be kind. You know, in in every interaction you have with another human being, there's a fork in the road. You can choose to be kind or you can choose to be right. You can choose to be kind or you can choose to be judgmental. You know, you can choose to be kind or you can choose to be self-righteous. And, and, and those things are, are often understandable and sometimes even valid. But any chance you get, choose the path of kindness. Nice. My mother always said to me, good manners cost nothing. I like that. Links. Third one, if you had the opportunity, what advice would you give a younger you just starting out in this new world of work? Focus on the basics. Focus on the fundamentals, get crystal clear on what are the basic principles and strategies and and, and core beliefs that you need to live by to live in an extraordinary life. And don't get tempted to chase what's new and what's flashy and what's shiny and what's sexy. Brilliant. And last but not least, what is the guiding principle or behavior that you've seen in every great leader you've ever worked with? They've been able to combine confidence with humility to a masterful level. They are confident in who they are as a person and who they are as a leader because they've done the work during the unseen hours to earn the right to be confident, but they brush that with a massive stroke of humility and they realize that no matter how good they are, they can get better and that they always need to stay open to coaching. They need to stay open to feedback and stay open to growth. And when you can learn to blend confidence with humility, you're you're unstoppable. Fantastic. Well, Alan Stein Jr., it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the HRND podcast today. Of course, to mention again, a link to your book, a link to your website will both be in the show notes. You offer courses, podcasts, books, and a wealth of high performance related resources on your site. So please do check that out. And please let me say from the bottom of my heart, thanks again for joining me on today's show. It's been an absolutely fantastic talk all about the world of high performance. And as it relates as well, of course, to the wonderful, but often underappreciated world 
of HR. And of course, if you are an HR professional listening to this show and you need support with a recruitment requirement, then of course, you can get in touch with either myself or any of my wonderful team at jgarecruitment.com. Just leaves me to say one more huge thanks to Alan Stein Jr. for joining me today. And I look forward to bringing you the next episode of the HR L&D podcast real soon. Thank you, Alan, so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO of JGA Recruitment Specialist HR Recruiters. If you need any help with the current HR or L&D vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.